The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So the British, with supreme legal logic, decided that the way to avoid that rule needing the consent of the affected population was to create a situation in which there was no affected population. And so what they did, and we've got all the legal documents on this now, it's pretty shocking stuff, was they decided to recharacterize the population. Instead of being inhabitants, residents, permanent population of the Chagos archipelago, they became contract laborers. And as contract laborers, they had no right to be consulted. I mean, it was ludicrous. It was you know, complete artifice. But that was the technique. So having created that principle, no permanent population, to get around the need to seek consent, they then, by their own logic, had to remove the entire population. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 8th, 2023. A few weeks ago, Human Rights Watch released a report on the forced expulsion of the Chagosian people, whom the United Kingdom deported from their island homes in the Indian Ocean about 60 years ago to make way for the United States to build a military base called Diego Garcia. The report recommends reparations for the Chagosian people and a trial for individuals responsible for these crimes against humanity, the very first time the group has laid such a charge at the door of the U.S. and the U.K. I sat down with Philippe Sands, an international human rights lawyer who served as counsel for Mauritius in its bid to reclaim sovereignty over the Chagos Archipelago. Philippe is the author of several books, including his most recent, The Last Colony, A Tale of Exile, Justice, and Britain's Colonial Legacy, which is about the islands. We discussed the Chagosian people's decades-long legal struggle to return to their ancestral home, a chance phone call from a ski lift, and the role of race and identity in the making and application of international law. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 8th. Philippe Sands on Britain's Last Colony. So, Philippe, many people listening uh, to this podcast will be familiar with with Chagos, uh, and I think that's you know in large part to your work and and of course the decades long struggle that the Chagosian people have have been going through. But for listeners who may not be familiar, I'd love if you could just start with perhaps situating the island for us, uh, the archipelago rather, uh, and then maybe just giving a, a brief history of the situation, perhaps. We can start with the lead up to the, the forced expulsion. Sure. So I suppose the best is to go back to 1965, at which point the Chagos Archipelago, a group of 58 islands located in the Indian Ocean between Mauritius, Madagascar and the Maldives, is part of the British colony of Mauritius. And it has been part of that colony since 1814, 
when France ceded it to the United Kingdom by the Treaty of Paris. In 1965, the British received a request from the United States to make available to them one of those 58 islands. It's got a familiar name. It's called Diego Garcia, and people know it today as a major U.S. military base. The United Kingdom acceded to that request in large part because they declined to participate in the Vietnam War and wanted to help the American friends. And in order to facilitate the creation of the base, the British decided they would separate the entire Chagos archipelago from the colony of Mauritius and create a new colony, Britain's last colony, called the British Indian Ocean Territory. That happened in late 1965. Mauritius got independence in 1968, and between 1968 and 1973, Britain removed the entire population of the Chagos Archipelago, about 2,000 people, mostly black, mostly descended from enslaved people, and that was the situation and the situation that pertains right now. And I I, want to get into a bit later uh, the legal strategy that you helped craft and and the relevant legal questions. But before we get into the application of the law to the facts, I want to give the listeners a real sense of the facts because they are quite damning in many ways. Can you give us a sense of just how these expulsions were carried out? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I can tell it most directly through the words of a single individual who I've come to know very well, Lisby Elise, born in 1953 was 20 years old in the spring of 1973. She is um, sort of the central character, if you like, in the book that I published in the UK, The Last Colony. It's not out in the US until later this year. And she would tell me exactly what had happened. On April the 28th, 1973, for the first time, she encountered a white person, in fact, a number of white people on her island, Peros Banos, one of the 58 islands of the Chagos Archipelago. And she was informed by that person that she would have to leave the next day and uh, she could take one suitcase with her. So it was a forcible deportation of the entire population of that island. That was about 400 people who'd been living there for generations. And that was replicated across the whole of the Chagos archipelago over a four or five year period. In fact, some of the people were deported in different ways. For example, they would go back to Mauritius uh, for medical treatment. And then uh, when they went to the port in Mauritius at Paul Louis to get back on the boat to bring them home, they'd be told that their island had been closed. So that happened systematically, rather brutally, over a period of four or five years, between 68 and 73. And then what became of the Chagosian people? Where, where, where were they sent? What were the living conditions like uh, in those new places? So most of the Chagossians were sent to two other places. They were sent to Mauritius, which is about a thousand miles away, and to the Seychelles, which is an, another independent country, not far from Mauritius, I mean, several hundred miles, but in the same vicinity in the Indian Ocean. A small number went to a French colony, part of France, actually, Réunion, And over the years, some, but not that many, were allowed to go to the United Kingdom. And they've settled near Gatwick Airport, where they landed, a place called Crawley. So there's a sort of diaspora now over those three countries, United Kingdom, Mauritius and Seychelles. I think the conditions varied from place to place. But in general, on arrival, the conditions were not good. There are many accounts in literature, in academic writing, of a community arriving in any of those places 
and not being welcomed with open arms. No money, no finance, no homes, no buildings, living in pretty dismal conditions. And over the years, it has gradually improved. I mean, I've spent time at Lisby Elysee's house. She has a very nice home now, very comfortable. But I think the early years were were very, very tough. And, you know, in each of these jurisdictions also, as in so many parts of the world, there are complex issues of race and identity and a black community arriving, you know, in a predominantly Indian uh, place or in the United Kingdom in a white place uh, is often not going to be received, should we say, with open arms. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've appreciated about your book and where you've spoken elsewhere on the issue is that you've been pretty unsparing about the racial dimensions of, of the case. But first, you know, I think someone who is familiar with U.S. military basing knows that there are other military bases around the world that coexist you know, with varying degrees of, of tensions with local populations. Uh, so as far as you can tell, why you know, did the colonial administrators and their American counterparts deem it necessary to depopulate the island like this? Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Tyler. And the answer to your question is the logic of the law. So you've got to situate this in the particular legal context of the moment. What had happened with the creation of the United Nations in 1945, and this was very largely an American project run by Roosevelt and then Truman, but also in particular a very sort of impressive American lawyer, Ralph Bunch, was a project of decolonization, basically an end to the European empires uh, and the European colonies around the world. And what emerged in 45 was something known as the principle of self-determination. The idea that a community could decide for itself its governance structures, how it would operate, and so on and so forth. That was taken forward in 1960 with a famous resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, Resolution 1514, on the right to self-determination. And that resolution set out the principles in which self-determination could be exercised, including in the context of decolonization. And one of the fundamental principles was you could not, in giving one of your colonies independence, dismember it. You couldn't separate off a bit of it, keep it for yourself, and then give the rest independence. Now, there was one workaround on that rule, and that was if you sought the consent of the affected population, you might be able to dismember a part of the colony. So the British, with supreme legal logic, decided that the way to avoid that rule needing the consent of the affected population was to create a situation in which there was no affected population. And so what they did, and we've we've got all the legal documents on this now, is it's pretty shocking stuff, was they decided to recharacterize the population. Instead of being inhabitants, residents, permanent population of the Chagos archipelago, they became contract laborers. And as contract laborers, they had no right to be consulted. Some of the contract laborers were one month old, two months old. I mean, it was ludicrous. It was, you know, complete artifice. But that was the technique. So having created that principle, no permanent population, to get around the need to seek consent, they then, by their own logic, had to remove the entire population. In fact, the Americans didn't, the Americans made it very clear, they didn't need anything depopulated apart from Diego Garcia. So under the American scheme, everyone could have stayed in the other islands, which are hundreds of miles away from Diego Garcia. But the British decided not to follow through that logic. And it has to be said, the Americans in the end were complicit in that forcible removal of the entire population. And it's really important to understand for the listeners 
the context here. In 1945, at Nuremberg, the idea of forcible deportation was identified as a crime against humanity. It was a big no-no. You could not remove hundreds of people or thousands of people from their homes without getting into serious legal difficulties, because that was in principle what had happened in the period between 39 and 45. And so Britain and the United States led the world in ending the idea that a state was free to forcibly depopulate uh, an area. And yet just 20 years later, here it was effectively doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, I think it's a great example of I think something that you've spoken about elsewhere in, in the, the uneven application of some of these legal principles like self-determination, you know, only applying in many cases historically to lighter skinned populations in the world. Well, we can, we, can come, we can come back a little bit in due course and talk about the l- relationship between the timing of what's happening now and what's happening in Ukraine. Because as you can imagine, when the United Kingdom goes uh, to various African friends and asks them to help uh, them to evict Russia from its illegal occupation of uh, Ukraine, they now find themselves in a bit of difficulty when it comes to the issue of Chagos, the illegal occupation of Chagos, and the forcible removal of population. So the issue of double standard has come back to haunt rather acutely right now. Absolutely. I want to turn now, uh, if we can, to your involvement in the case. When did you first, you know, become aware of of Chagos and the the plight of the Chagosians who were displaced? I had heard of Diego Garcia, largely like many of your listeners, because in the period around 2003 in the so-called War on Terror, its name began to pop up in relation to allegations, it was no more than that at the time, of extraordinary rendition, taking detainees, you know, flying them around the world for unsavory treatment in various other places. But I didn't know anything about Chagos. I came on on my radar screen in April 2010. I was on holiday uh, in France, skiing actually, and my phone went and there was a number that I didn't recognize. uh, And it turned out to be Mauritius and it turned out to be the office of the prime minister of Mauritius asking whether I'd be willing to assist the prime minister of Mauritius in recovering islands wrongly, unlawfully removed from the sovereignty of Mauritius 50 or so years earlier, the Chagos Archipelago. I didn't know anything about Chagos. I was sort of stunned when I read myself into the story. But I was asked by the prime minister to help design a legal strategy to recover, if you like, the territorial integrity of his country, Mauritius. And interestingly, in the course of that very early conversation, it became very clear to me that the reason he had come to me, ironically enough, was that I'd written a book a few years earlier, in 2005, called Lawless World, which focused on the war in Iraq and its illegality, in my view. And he wanted an an English barrister and an academic who was willing to take on the Brits, who wasn't frightened to take on the Brits. And that was why he came to me. It's quite the image, I think, of uh, you know you holding a cell phone with a gloved hand, maybe on a ski lift, and at the other end of the line, you know, a much warmer <laughs> climate. Tyler, it was even worse than that. I, I was, I remember, I was, I was with my brother, and I was on the chairlift. And normally, I don't <laughs> take a, a phone call when I'm on the chairlift because I'm so terrified of dropping the phone, you know, in losing it in the snow below. But, but I, I remember looking at it in my gloved hand, ski gloved hand. And and the number so intrigued me that I couldn't resist pressing the, you know, little green button to answer the telephone. 
but that was how it began. The conversation continued to the end of the chairlift. I remember navigating myself off the chairlift whilst speaking on the telephone. And um, I remember the moment incredibly well. Oh, I think we're all glad you didn't drop the phone (laughs) in that moment. I'm curious, as far as you can tell what the motivation uh, behind that initial call was, you know, was it narrowly focused on the right of return for the Chagosian people or was it more of a, you know, territorial sovereignty kind of issue? This has been a long-standing issue for Mauritians across the political spectrum. Uh, The dismemberment of their country and the growing outrage that a part of their population had been forcibly displaced. But there was one catalytic event, ironically enough, um, in 2009, 2010, that caused the whole thing to happen. I mean, in life, we sort of learn the sort of butterfly wings effect that one act will have unexpected consequences. The act here actually was indirectly related to extraordinary rendition and the use of Diego Garcia, which the British initially denied that Diego Garcia had been used. And in fact, the Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, in about 2007, made a statement in Parliament denying that there'd been any rendition flights passing through Diego Garcia. It then emerged that there had been rendition flights uh, passing through. I don't recall exactly how many it was. That's not yet, I think, been conclusively determined. And so Mr. Miliband got himself into a bit of difficulty and I think, understandably, decided he wanted to clean up Britain's sort of image around Diego Garcia. So he came up with this actually rather admirable idea of creating the world's largest marine protected area around the entire Chagos archipelago, hundreds of thousands of square miles of pristine marine environment protected forever, uh, except allowing human activity around the military base on Diego Garcia. But apart from that, all human activity would be banned. That was celebrated by the environmental organizations, the NGOs, including many in America, Pew Foundation in particular leading the way. And that coincided, unfortunately for Mr. Miliband and Pew, with the release of WikiLeaks documents. And amongst the millions of pages of WikiLeaks documents was one cable from 2009 sent from the American embassy in London to the State Department in Washington, D.C., which recorded the conversation between American diplomats and the administrator for the British Indian Ocean Territory, a British civil servant, in which he set out the fabulousness of the new marine protected area. And he set out, or at least it was recorded in the cable, that one of the great benefits of the new marine protected area around the Chagos archipelago is that it would mean that the Chagossians would never be able to return. Uh, Even worse, the cable didn't refer to them as Chagossians, quoting the British civil servant. He referred to them, and I apologize for using this language, as Man Fridays. It was extremely derogative, extremely unfortunate. It created a lot of headlines. It made its way to Mauritius. And that was, I'm told, the catalyst for the decision of the then Prime Minister of Mauritius, Mr. Randulam, to look for legal counsel to help design a strategy to recover the islands. Yeah, and I'd love to dig into that strategy. I think one of the most valuable parts of the book is is you detailing how you thought through the legal strategy. Could you speak to that a bit and and sort of you know sketch your your road to the ICJ? Because from what I understand, that wasn't your initial target, so to speak. It was tough. I just want to make clear at the outset that I I was I was one amongst a group of lawyers. I was the first person contacted, and I was asked to put together a team. We worked very closely 
with some really wonderful lawyers in Port Louis, which is the capital of Mauritius, the Solicitor General, the various legal advisors, and they really, I'd say, led the strategy. And then with two other senior lawyers, James Crawford, who's no longer with us, former academic and judge at the International Court, and a, a lawyer in DC, Paul Reichler. And we, we, we had a difficulty because the Mauritians really wanted to go to the International Court of Justice, but there was no jurisdiction at the International Court of Justice for a, for a contentious case. Mauritius could not sue the United Kingdom at the International Court of Justice. What they could have done back in 2010 was to go to the General Assembly of the United Nations and ask the General Assembly to send a request for an advisory opinion on the decolonization of Mauritius and whether it had been completed. But as things stood in 2010, that was, we thought, not possible because we couldn't see any way that Mauritius would persuade a majority of the members of the United Nations taking on the combined might of Britain and the US two permanent members of the Security Council to vote for such a resolution. So we designed another strategy, which is to go to a more obscure route, which was via the Law of the Sea Convention, a 1982 treaty protecting the world's oceans. And that allowed Mauritius to bring a direct case against the United Kingdom, arguing that the marine protected area was illegal for two reasons. First, the United Kingdom had not consulted with Mauritius on the creation of the marine protected area and thus violated Mauritius's rights on fisheries and various other obligations owed to it under the Law of the Sea Convention. And secondly, in a more, a more we knew it to, to be a more difficult argument, that the United Kingdom was not the coastal state and therefore had no power to create the marine protected area. And the argument was that under the law of 1945 and self-determination and the law of the sea and general international law, Mauritius was the coastal state and it was only Mauritius that could create a marine protected area. So on the first argument, we won unanimously 5-0. The marine protected area was declared to be unlawful against the law of the sea convention. On the second issue, the coastal state issue, who was the coastal state? Was it Mauritius or the UK? The tribunal ruled by three votes to two that it didn't have jurisdiction to deal with that issue. It was a law of the sea body. It could only deal with maritime issues. It couldn't deal with sovereignty over land or over islands. But there were two dissenting judges or arbitrators, the Tanzanian, Mr. Kateka, and the German, Mr. Wolfram, and they dissented on the substance of what we were interested in. They said, no, we do have competence to deal with that issue, and we're going to go further. In our view, the United Kingdom violated international law, and Mauritius is sovereign over the Chagos Archipelago, not the United Kingdom. That was significant because although we lost on that issue, we had two reputable international judges now siding with us. And the majority, because they kicked the case out on jurisdictional grounds, said nothing. They didn't say the UK was sovereign. So armed with that, we went back to Mauritius and the new Prime Minister of Mauritius, Mr. Jugnath, then instructed us, ordered us, to try to get the matter back onto the Assembly, General Assembly of the United Nations agenda and push it through. And I think we would have had real difficulty getting it through, but we were assisted by one unexpected political development, and it was this. In June 2016, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. And the consequence of that was it pretty much lost all its international authority at the UN in terms of being able to lobby and get votes. All of the EU members all of a sudden abandoned them and said, not our problem anymore, you're on your own. 
The matter went to the General Assembly in June 2017, and by an overwhelming majority, I think 94 votes in favour, just 16 against, the UK and the US were pretty much trounced, and the General Assembly sent two questions to the International Court of Justice. Question one was, is the decolonization of Mauritius completed in accordance with international law? And question number two was, if it has not been completed, what are the legal consequences? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service, 
that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. It's really interesting, I think, how, you know, after an issue that has been live for decades can really gain momentum because of a confluence of, of historical events that happen, Brexit, the global war on terror, et cetera. So I, I also want to get into a bit of your, your strategy for approaching the judges in the ICJ. And I also would love for you to speak a bit about, again, the, the racial component of this. You know, I think you've said that international judges, you know, do their best to be impartial and, and neutral, but of course, everyone has a point of view. So can you speak a bit about how you approached your legal strategy in, in going to the ICJ? Well, one of the things I learned from James Crawford, a wonderful Australian lawyer, was you've got to proceed on the basis that the court isn't just some sort of homogenous entity. There are 15 judges who said actually 14 judges uh, sat on this case because James Crawford by then had been elected to the court. So obviously he had to recuse himself and couldn't sit. They are individuals, as you say. They come from 14 different countries. They have their own backgrounds, their own legal cultures, their own legal baggage, their own personal views. And in designing the arguments, we looked very closely at the substantive issues and how could we best encourage them. Now, one of the historical backgrounds that was very significant on this case was that in 1966, the court had given judgment in another case that was notorious, notoriously bad, I mean, a catastrophic judgment. It was a case brought by two African countries, Liberia and Ethiopia, uh, against South Africa in relation to the occupation of a territory that was then called Southwest Africa. Today it's called Namibia. And essentially the, African, the two African countries asked the court to rule that South Africa was in violation of international law, international standards, human rights norms, in its mistreatment of the black residents of Southwest Africa the practice of apartheid, racial discrimination, and so on and so forth. The court split by seven votes to seven, and in which case the president of the court gets the casting vote, and voted that the international court didn't have competence, didn't have jurisdiction over that question for various complex reasons. And 
it caused a scandal. And the consequence of that, of course, was that many countries from the global south refused to have anything more to do with the International Court of Justice for more than 20 years. But it hung over the court. And I think it hung over the court in the case of Chagos, because the court was acutely aware that it had had a decolonization issue 50 years earlier, 60 years, 50 years earlier, and had basically performed very poorly in it. And I think it was aware of its responsibilities in relation to this case. So our legal strategy has a substantive component. You've got to make sure your arguments you know, are strong, decent, persuasive for the range of judges who are sitting. But there are also perception issues. We wanted to make sure that we could rebut the British and American argument that this was a bilateral dispute between the United Kingdom and Mauritius. And one of the ways that we did that was to work with a raft of other countries from South America, Asia, Africa, Europe, to intervene in the case, to underscore the point that this was a case that wasn't about just two states. It had a, a global element. It had a global interest. It was a matter of broad concern. And then going even further, one of the concerns that I wanted to make sure was that the counsel who appeared for these countries were not just the usual suspects, you know, the mostly white male lawyers from London, Washington or New York, Paris, and so on and so forth, but that it was truly a representative group of counsel. And that that happened in this case. There was great diversity in terms of nationality, in terms of gender, in terms of colour. And you got the sense, if you were in the courtroom, that this was a case truly of global interest. And I've always believed that the substance also comes hand in hand with the process elements of these cases. Well, I mean, it may well have been that whatever we argued, we would have succeeded. But I don't think we expected to get the results that we did, which was essentially a unanimous decision. There was only one dissent on the merits. It was 13 votes to one. And the one dissent, actually a very fine judge, the American judge, Joan Donahue, but she made it clear that she had dissented not for not on the merits, but really because she believed the court should not have exercised its jurisdiction. And I think she went out of her way to say she was not supporting the UK argument. So the upshot of it was, it was pretty much, in effect, a unanimous decision. And that gave it a lot of heft. What did they rule? in an advisory opinion, not binding on states, but binding on the United Nations. Firstly, that the decolonization of Mauritius had not been lawfully completed because the circumstances in which Mauritius obtained its independence and had consented to this membership of its territory back in 1965 was in a situation of duress, which therefore meant it had no legal effect, and that Mauritius was therefore the sovereign over the entire Chagos archipelago. And secondly, more significantly, that the United Kingdom had to leave forthwith. That then went to, back to the General Assembly, which voted by an even larger majority, 116 votes in favour, and only six votes against. In other words, the UK and the US only managed to persuade four countries to support them, Australia, Hungary, uh, the Maldives, and Israel, meant that it was an overwhelmingly clear decision. And the General Assembly also ordered the United Kingdom to leave the Chagos Archipelago by November 2019 and made clear any Chagossian who wanted to go back was free to return to their homes. So it was pretty much a total victory for the Chagossians, for Mauritius and for the African Union. 
that played an absolutely crucial role. This was, I, I'm told, the first time on such a matter that every African country voted in support of the request for the advisory opinion. So there was a very strong sense of African unity in this issue. I think the clear, curious outlier in that voting block that voted with the Americans um, was the Maldives. Do you have any, I don't know, conspiratorial or uh, just ideas of why they may have voted that way? Well, you know, it is, let's just say it's a matter of speculation. It was pretty weird. They were the only G77 country to vote with uh, the UK and the US. One has to assume, but I don't know this. I'm not making allegations. There was some sort of an understanding, shall we say, between the United Kingdom and the Maldives. They voted against, but that, of course, you know, life is magical. Um, You can never quite predict how your act is going to open new doors. They voted against. That really irritated Mauritius. Again, for your listeners, the curiosity here is that Maldives shares a maritime boundary with the Chagos Archipelago. And Maldives' vote against then allowed Mauritius to bring a third case to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Hamburg to delimit the maritime boundary between Chagos, Mauritius, on the one hand, and the Maldives on the other. Now, when we filed the case, we expected what happened next, which is that Maldives filed an objection, said no, the court, the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Hamburg, can't delimit the maritime boundary because there's a dispute over sovereignty. There's a dispute between Mauritius and the United Kingdom. We argued that that was no longer the case following the advisory opinion of 2019. And the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea voted by eight judges to one. There were nine judges sitting that the Maldives argument was not good. And they rejected the Maldives argument And what they said was the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice had definitively settled the matter. Mauritius was the coastal state, and they were now going to proceed to delimit the maritime boundary. And the upshot of that is we had oral arguments uh, last October on the delimitation of the maritime boundary. And we expect the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea to give a judgment setting a definitive maritime boundary over the next few weeks. So the matter is now, as far as international courts and tribunals, definitively settled. If you want to look at the numbers, 28 international judges have now had a chance to address this issue over three different cases. Of those 28 judges, not one has supported the UK claim to sovereignty. Four have said that the tribunal has no jurisdiction to determine the matter, and 24 or 23, I can't remember, have ruled that Mauritius is sovereign. So the matter is, you know, definitively settled, uh, and we're now into a new phase, with all that implies for uh, the situation on the ground in Chagos. The return of the Chagossians, the future of the military base, the protection of the marine environment. And let me just make very clear that Mauritius has from the get-go said three things. One, we are committed to the right of return of any Chagossian who wants to go back. Two, we value the efforts of conservation and will take those forward. And three, this was very significant in terms of strategy, the US military base at Diego Garcia will stay and will continue to operate as it has operated in accordance with international law. And it was very important, we felt, particularly before the International Court of Justice, 
to take the issue of the military base, if you like, off the agenda. Because I think if the judges had felt that they would have to, in effect, in deciding this case, uh, to form a view that would have consequences for the operation of a very significant US military base, that may have given them pause for thought. But in any event, Mauritius has an excellent relationship both with the United Kingdom and the United States, and is very committed to the base at Diego Garcia going forward uh, over the very long term. Before we continue to follow that thread of what has happened since the ICJ ruling and then the the victory um, at the UN, I want to just dwell on one more aspect of the legal strategy, and that's, I think, your the perhaps unorthodox decision to ask a Chagosian person to address the court directly. Can you talk a bit about you know behind the scenes uh, that decision, how you chose um, who you did, and then uh, you know a bit about that address? I think it made for a really powerful opening to your book, and so I want to make sure we. We get to talk about that. Sure. No, well, thank you for asking that. I mean, it comes back to Lisby Elysee, who was the individual who addressed the court. We had actually a pretty big debate uh, amongst the legal team, the Mauritians, the Chagossians, the externals, on how to handle this. I had always felt that given what happened in 1965 and then the forcible removal of the population between 68 and 73, it was very, very important that the judges should hear directly from a Chagossian. And that view was was broad support for that view. The question was how to do it. And we did it in a number of stages. We began with the Chagossian community to go and see if they could identify who they thought would be an appropriate person. And they came up with four or five really rather wonderful individuals. And we settled on one person in particular as the likely person, Lisby Elysee, who I mentioned earlier. She was in her late 60s, very articulate, very dignified, very intelligent uh, lady. And there was a challenge, which was that Lisby Elysee could neither read nor write. And the normal way in which you would address the court would be to read from a prepared statement. But because Lisby couldn't read, we couldn't do that. And we were concerned She's very wonderful, but she also is very talkative that we would you know, invite her up onto the stand. And once she started telling her story, she could go on for a very long time. That would be problematic because we only had two hours and 40 minutes to present the entirety of our case. So what we did was we asked the court whether they would be willing to allow her to make her statement by way of a pre-recorded video. And they understood the context. She only spoke Creole and she couldn't read or write. And they, I think very generously, I think correctly, gave us permission to do that. So we pre-recorded a statement. It lasts just three minutes and 47 seconds. I've done dozens and dozens of cases at the International Court and I can't recall a more powerful moment than this one. I mean, her testimony is available. Immensely powerful statement, very dignified, just set out the facts And one of the aspects of the recording that was complex for us was that right at the end of her recording, she became, for understandable reasons, rather emotional. And indeed, right at the end, she wept. And we had a very big debate amongst ourselves in Paul-Louis, the lawyers there in Mauritius and the foreign lawyers, on how to handle that. On, On the one hand, there was a view that the judges would not like to be presented with emotion in so raw a way. On the other hand, we felt it would be disrespectful of her to cut off the video 
just before that happened. And so in the end, that was the view that prevailed. I mean, it actually fell to me to present the video. And I was I was pretty anxious, actually, about how it would go down. And it turned out I needn't have been because it, it was a very powerful moment. And 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 what happened after the she had finished speaking, there was this extraordinary silence in the courtroom. You know, you know, as experienced counsel, when you've got the judges with you and when they're against you and who's against you and why you feel it. You feel it in the courtroom and and you sensed the silence after that video was played. And she was in the room watching the judges, watching her on a screen. It was an extraordinary moment. And at that point, I think you sensed that something significant had happened in the courtroom. It was it was dramatic in a sort of understated way. And I know from the way the judges wrote their opinion subsequently that it had a profoundly important uh, effect. It could have it could have gone south. It could have been a total disaster, but it wasn't. And I think it wasn't because of Lisby Elise's character and strength. I think there's a very important point to make here that it wasn't, I mean, there is a sort of white saviour concern of these lawyers coming in and, you know, helping an African country and a Chagossian population. They sorted this out themselves, essentially. The Chagossians had litigated for 20 years in the English courts without ultimately success. But on the way, they had won some significant battles. And one of the things that happened about a decade ago was that they, through processes of discovery, managed to get the courts to order internal British government documents to be made available into domestic UK proceedings. That was a Chagossian initiative. And I think we were able to use those documents and those documents, I think, were immensely significant in ultimately winning the case at the International Court of Justice. And those documents were there because the Chagossians got them. And I think it's very important to underscore that point. It was genuinely a team effort. And we would not, I think, have prevailed before the International Court of Justice without the testimony of Lisby Elysee and the documents obtained by the Chagossians. Now, as as you know, and, and many of our listeners will know, um, Human Rights Watch just released uh, its report on the the expulsion and a few weeks ago, and and they call for, among other things, um, reparations for the Chagossian people, and then also I, I believe they also call for um, the individuals responsible to be uh, tried in some way. You know what f- what forms of accountability and reparations have occurred, if any, so far, and and what do you see um, as the route for achieving? what Human Rights Watch has called for? Well, it's a, it was a, it's a pretty hard-hitting report. I mean, it's an independent report of, of Human Rights Watch. The Prime Minister of Mauritius, in a speech at the General Assembly, had raised, when it came to the vote to send the matter to the International Court of Justice, had described the treatment of the Chagossians as akin to a crime against humanity. And the British were extremely upset about this. I, I can tell you this was, of all the things... The closest we came to crossing a line. The Human Rights Watch report calls what has happened a crime against humanity and lays responsibility for that at the door of the British and the Americans for being complicit in in the British actions. I am told that this may be the first time that Human Rights Watch has ever laid the charge of a crime against humanity at the door of the United States or indeed of the United Kingdom. And so that is very, very far-reaching. A crime against humanity is indeed an international crime, and there are consequences in terms of individual responsibility or liability. 
and also reparation. The Chagossians have had some reparation, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, but relatively small amounts that I don't think come close to, you know, compensating for for what they've been through. I mean, the deprivation of their homes for 50 years and so on and so forth. So I think that it will be a matter for them, for the British government and for the US government, possibly in some form, to come together and and move on in relation to this issue. I mean, as you can imagine, there are other countries that will delight in this awful story in the sense that wrongdoing on this scale by the British and the Americans, you know, plays well in the hands of right now China uh, and Russia. And I hope the British and the Americans will sort this out in a decent way as we move forward, going forward. I mean, you know, I've got my own personal views about what ought to happen, but it it will be a matter for, I suspect, intergovernmental discussions and for the Chagossians to make clear what it is they want. Interestingly, Human Rights Watch also asked uh, for an apology from, from King Charles III, and it will be interesting to see whether any sort of apology is forthcoming. You know, in the course of the case before the International Court, the British would 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 come back always to their refrain they would they would say we we regret the manner in which the chagossians were removed but the british are very good with words and you know i and others saw straight away what they were saying and what they were not saying they were not expressing regret for the fact of the removal they were expressing regret for the manner of the removal and that's a very different thing the uk has a long history in relation to its colonies of things going very badly wrong and has always closed the door on discussions of reparation or even apology for fear of a floodgates effect opening. And I hope they might take a leaf here out of the copybook of Germany, which not only in relation to the Holocaust, but in relation to other things, has had a very commendable approach. Last year, Germany and Namibia negotiated the beginnings of an agreement in relation to the mistreatment of the Herero population. Southwest Africa that I referred to earlier used to be a German colony. It used to be called German Southwest Africa. And in 1908, there was a terrible massacre of a community of indigenous peoples called the Herero community. Germany has now recognized that that was a wrongful act and has characterized it as an act of genocide and has offered a billion euros in development assistance. It has not wanted to characterize the support as reparation. Again, I suspect for fear of opening the floodgates. Uh, Namibia has thus far, I think, not accepted the amount because they want it characterized as a reparation. And so there is a negotiation ongoing. But the bottom line is Germany has come to terms with its wrongdoing. I'm afraid, and here I speak very personally, Britain has not yet really come to terms uh, with its wrongdoing. And again, speaking personally, I I do hope that that changes in the coming period. And speaking of questions of British sovereignty, um, if you'll indulge me in, I think, another related tangent on the Falkland Islands, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, the the recent news that British has reasserted its sovereignty over the islands. And if there are any lessons, you know, you would draw from the Chagosian case in applying to the to the Falkland case? The Chagossians have said, and they've said to me when I when I 
talk with Olivier Bancou and, and, and Lisbeth Elysee, they make the point, and you've alluded to this earlier, uh, Olivier will say to me, Olivier Bancou is the, the main person who's brought the litigation in the domestic courts and who was born on Perros Banos, not so far from Diego Garcia, uh, and was removed as a four-year-old contract labourer. He says, Philippe, if we had been white, none of this would have happened to us. And it, it's very hard to escape that conclusion, I think. You know, there are about 2,000 people on the Falkland Islands, the Malvinas, as the Argentines call them. They've been treated rather differently from the Chagossians. There was an unfortunate moment after the vote at the General Assembly once the advisory opinion was being received and, if you like, implemented. The British delegation took the floor to give a closing statement in the course of that closing statement, they said, we want to reiterate that we are firmly in favour of the right of self-determination. And then there was a pause. And then they said, in respect of the Falkland Islands. And what I think a lot of people heard in the chamber of the General Assembly then was, huh, so you support self-determination for a community of white people, but you don't support self-determination for a community of black people. I'm sure it was unintended, but it was extremely unfortunate. And it's very hard to escape the sentiment that this did not have a racial element at its beating heart. One of the things, coming back to the question of strategy, that we were very keen to do, and it was correct, it was right, was to point out that what had happened with Chagos and Mauritius was completely distinguishable from other situations relating to the United Kingdom. It had no implications, for example, for Gibraltar or for the Falkland Islands, Malvinas, because those were different situations. Those were not situations in which there had been a dismemberment of part of a colony which then got independence. And so you could distinguish the stories, and I think they are distinguishable. But, uh, you know, the point is right that there remain 13, I think, British overseas territories over which sovereignty is claimed, but they are all distinguishable. Chagos really is in the UK situation, a case on its own, but it is very much the last colony in this sense. It's the last colony that Britain has in Africa, and it's the last colony that Britain ever created. So it has, I think, a singular uh, symbolic significance. Uh, now, Philippe, before we wrap up, I wanted to just open up the space to you in case there was anything else you wanted to add or anything you wished I had asked. The floor is yours in case there's anything else you wanted to talk about. I, I, I'd say this. I mean, I'm often asked, what are, the, what are the cases in a career that now spans 35 years doing international disputes of various kinds that stand out? And is this one of them? And the answer is yes. I always refer to two cases. The first is the Pinochet case in London when... General Pinochet was arrested and raised questions of immunity before the English courts in relation to a request for him to be extradited to Spain for crimes against humanity and genocide. And the second case is this one. And I think this one is right up there because it raises sort of emblematic issues of fundamental significance about the nature of our world, about matters historical and political and about the idea of an international rule of law. In the context of the final case, the case before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea against the Maldives, we went to Chagos to do a site visit to inspect and carry out a survey on a, 
a feature called Blenheim Reef, um, uninhabited, uh, far to the north of the Chagos Archipelago. We stopped off on the way on Peros Banyos, and five Chagossians were with us, including Lisby Elise and Olivier Bancou, whom I've mentioned earlier. And they set foot on their island for the first time, not accompanied by British armed guards. And it was an immensely significant moment, I have to say, for me personally, because at a time when the rule of law in international relations seems so problematic, here was an example where, but for the decisions of various international judges and courts, Lisby Elise and Olivier Bancou would never have been able to go back to the Chagos Archipelago. And since then, and since the decision of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, we have more recently in November of 2022, the decision of the British government to open negotiations with Mauritius on the resolution of this issue on the basis of international law. And that, I think, is really significant. And I want to give credit to the United Kingdom, which, uh, you know, has faced obviously a difficult arguments, but has finally seen the light. And I am cautiously optimistic that in the coming period, on the basis of the decisions of the International Court and the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, we will have a final resolution. Lisby Elise and the other Chagossians that want to return will be able to return. A strong marine protected area will be established. And the US base at Diego Garcia will be able to continue on Diego Garcia under the sovereignty of Mauritius in accordance with international law. And that is a that is a really powerful and positive outcome. So so it's been a very big case for me, I would say. Well, I, I don't often get to end on an optimistic note, I think, in, in many of these podcast conversations. So when that opportunity presents itself, I like to take it. Um, so that feels like a good, positive, optimistic place to end. Um, and I really want to thank you for taking the time. Oh, I've really appreciated it, Tyler. It's been great speaking to you. And thanks for all you do, your podcast and the whole, uh, the whole website. It's ter- terrific. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.